As we have opening prayer this morning, I would like to read these words from the prophet Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. Our Father, we thank you that we know the God who has come to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. And you've taken on the form of man that you might walk with us and provide with us, provide for us salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you are the radiant and the glorious God, the true and the living God, and that you have chosen to call us out of darkness into the radiance of that light. And Lord, I pray that you will focus our thoughts this morning on your word. You'll speak to us. We're all in different places in our walk with you. We all have different concerns on our mind and heart, and yet you know every one of them, even as you know the number of the hairs on our head. Lord, I pray that we will have the faith to know that you hear our prayer, the faith to know that you will answer our prayer and bring about your good purpose. And so, Lord, bless us this day. Give us understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit of your word. And as the word is proclaimed in the service and in other Sunday school classes this morning, we trust you for your presence for your mighty power to be poured out, to transform lives, to make us like unto your Son. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we again return to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 19, where have we been looking at the trial and tribulation through which David went towards the end of his life, in the latter years of his life. I think all of us can attest to the fact that just because the years pass by doesn't mean that problems disappear with the years. It seems they remain. And if we're truly men and women of God and we are people of prayer, it seems like the number of prayer requests coming increase as the years go by because not only do we have our children but our grandchildren and then the great-grandchildren to be praying for as well as many others. And so... David is going through a very trying time in his life. And we've seen this rebellion raised up by his own son, Absalom, a young man who in many ways looked a great deal like his father. But he had a different spirit within him. He was not the sweet singer of Israel, Absalom. Instead, he was a, rebe a rebel. And so in the 19th chapter, let me, let me read beginning with verse 1. We looked at the first few verses last time, but... Let me uh, read the beginning uh, with the first verse and carry us through with continuity here. 2 Samuel 19, reading at verse 1. Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. 
for you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So the king arose and sat in the gate. When they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. Now Israel, now we're, we're suddenly switching visions here, uh, uh, venues. Now all Israel had fled to each to his tent. And all the people were quarreling throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Then King David said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, sent to them, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not bone, my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also, if you will not be commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, saying, Return you and all your servants. The king then returned and came as far as the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal in order to meet the king, to bring the king across the, this Jordan. As we saw last week, David, his forces had defeated the forces of Absalom, and Absalom had been slain by Joab in spite of David's command otherwise to him to spare the life of the young man. And of course, when the news arrived of the death of Absalom, David went into great depression. And he was pained deeply in his soul. And for the reasons we talked about last time. And Joab, the perpetrator of the evil, or whatever it was, in, in David's eyes it was evil at least, came to David and said, look what you're doing, David. All the men have won a great victory. They put their life on the line for you. They, a smaller force against a larger force, and yet they had a great victory over the larger force. And, and they have now returned with great joy, and now you have quashed it. Because they see that you're more concerned about Absalom than you are for them. And of course, he makes some statements there in verse 6 and so forth that are, are really false statements. David did not care more for his son than for the people, but at the moment he was depressed, he was grieving, and he wasn't thinking very clearly at all. But this was like a bucket of cold water in David's face. And, and, and he heard Joab. And certainly he was hurt by Joab. But he did respond. And he did go down to the gate. And he greeted the people. And he thanked them for what they had done on his behalf. And they were greatly cheered as a result. Absalom's Israelite force had been routed by David's force. And we're told in this passage in verse 8, at the last phrase of verse 8, now Israel had fled each to his tent. Not everybody in Israel lived in tents at that time, but that's the typical Old Testament statement of the home of, of these nom semi-nomadic, nomadic. Many of them, of course, were permanently ensconced now. They lived in towns, they lived in villages, they lived in homes made out of stone and, and mud brick and so forth. But, but that's the idea throughout the Old Testament. You, you, you flee back to your tent, to your home, to your base, whatever it happened to be uh, made out of. 
and they had fled. These are the surviving soldiers. The scripture tells us 20,000 of them had died in the battle, even though more of them died fleeing through the forests of Ephraim and falling off of ravines and whatever all. And we know how Absalom died hanging out of a tree. How many, how many were left to flee home? We don't know. Possibly another 20,000, maybe a few less, maybe some more. We, we don't know the numbers. They aren't given for us here. But as soon as they got home, they began blaming each other for failing to join together and agreeing that they ought to bring David back as king, bring him back to the throne. I think they felt guilty, certainly they felt guilty, over having joined in a rebellion against God's anointed king. And you know how important that is in the life of David. Throughout David's whole life, he always honored God's anointed people. It wasn't up to him to, to touch the lives of these people who had been anointed by God. That's God's business. And certainly that had carried over to some extent into the, the hearts of at least some of the people of Israel. And so they were feeling guilty for this rebellion. And this guilt shows up in the fact that they start talking to each other and they start saying, ah, but remember, it is David who delivered us from the Philistines. It's, it's David who delivered us from the Ammonites and, and, and from the Arameans and all the other people. David is the great victorious king. What are we doing? He's in exile on the other side of the Jordan in Mayanam in the land of Gilead. Let's bring him home. I think God is behind that. As I try to keep emphasizing, as you, as you read through the scripture, and we're, you're talking about spiritual warfare from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. The real powers behind these events that happen are the powers of the, are the unseen forces of the spiritual realm. And God has brought conviction to the hearts of these people and convicted them of their rebellion. This is not the right thing that you should have been doing. And this, is, this exemplifies what God does. If we are a true believer in Jesus Christ, if we have truly been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will convict us when we sin, when we rebel, when we walk off the wrong path in the wrong way. God will convict us. His Spirit will speak to us. We may shut Him off. We may not listen, but He does speak. And generally speaking, he will use the word of God to do that. So those who walk contrary to him who are his can expect to be convicted of their rebellion. From the many examples of scripture, we know that God takes rebellion very, very seriously. We know that in the long run, he will either reform or remove the rebel. Those are the choices. Either the rebel is reformed or he is removed from the scene. And you go through scripture and you can find numerous examples of such rebels. Uh, in most cases, they end up being removed because they won't be reformed. Absalom, of course, we noted through the scripture as we looked, there's no place in scripture where it ever says that Absalom paid God any heed at all. He was a rebel in his heart. And God removed him. Apparently, the groundswell of conviction led the elders of all the tribes to finally get together, except Judah. Now, Judah, Judah is not in this at, at this point in time. But the other tribes, the, the other uh, eight and a half tribes that are on the west side of the Jordan River, because the side, uh, the east side of the Jordan where David was, the whole land of Gilead, as far as we know, was loyal to David through this whole thing. Um, they were his main supporters. They provided him with provisions. They're the ones who provided him with troops. 
and, and it's, the, it's the tribes on the west side of the Jordan that were primarily in rebellion uh, against him and supported, uh, supported Absalom. And so they, they extend a special invitation. They send messengers to David and they say, David, please come back. Return and rule over us. This is our desire. We should never have rebelled in the first place. Please come back and rule over us. But amongst those who sent this message were none, were none of the elders of the tribe of Judah. None of the elders of the tribe of Judah. And think about this for a minute, and David will point this out. David was of the tribe of Judah. And yet it would be his tribe that was last to invite him to return. And the reason for this, of course, was that they were, they had particularly involved themselves in the rebellion. The re rebellion broke out in Judah. The rebellion had its ultimate center in Jerusalem after Absalom took the city over. And, and the elders of Judah made no, gave no opposition, at least that's recorded in scripture, to Absalom. And they cooperated with Absalom in all of this. And so they felt particularly guilty because they were of the kin of David, and yet they themselves had been at the heart of the rebellion. So they were waiting. They had made no efforts to reach out to David. They were waiting to see what he was going to do. Was David going to lash out at them in, in retribution? Or, or what was David going to do? And I think they were fearful. I think they were in great fear about what David would do because David had every legitimate right to punish those that had been part of the rebellion. I mean, this is historically what always happens. You go down through the pages of history on virtually every continent of the world except, of course, Antarctica, and, and you will discover that when rebellions break out and the rebellion fails, the coup is squashed, that the participants, the perpetrators, are almost always executed. That's why they strive so hard to win, because they know if they lose, they're done for. Well, David exhibited godly humility. I, you know, we often hear about David as a type of Christ, and David is a type of Christ in so many ways, as he will be here. But we also realize that in many instances he truly reflects his fleshliness. But in this case, in humility, a man who had been king over Israel for many, many, many years, a man who had built a great empire, and yet he, in humility, takes the initiative. David the offended takes the initiative on behalf of the offenders. And he restore, seeks to restore the breach between himself and Judah, even though he was not the one who caused the breach. Now, what does that remind us of, right? Let me, let me read the passage that probably pops into many of our minds when we think about David, the offended, being the one to initiate the healing of the breach with the offender, uh, I was reminded at least of Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait till we cleaned up our act and the world got nice and then sent his son. He sent his son into the world at the appointed time, Galatians 4, 4 tells us. Uh, you know, at, at the fullness of times, he sent his son and that fullness of times was at the time of the height of the early Roman Empire 
during the reign of the greatest of all the Roman emperors, Augustus, Octavian. And, and if you look in detail at the empire at that time, you discover it, it is totally, well, maybe I shouldn't say totally, but heavily into hedonism, materialism, lust of all kinds. And so it wasn't a cleaned up world into which Christ came. And so here we have David who had every human reason to say, I'm not doing a thing until they apologize and get it right with me, reaching out to them and drawing them in. It, it reminds me, of course, of his son Solomon's statement that a soft answer turns away wrath. It's a hard thing to do in the midst of a heated debate, but that's the godly way. And so by way of the priests, David sent a message, gently chastising the elders, of course, not for the rebellion, but for their delay in inviting him to return to his throne in Jerusalem. And, and he points out, you are my own bone and flesh. You're of the same tribe of Judah. I'm of the tribe of Judah. Why are you so reticent to call me back? Why have... Reuben, uh, well, let's stay on the other side of the Jordan. Why has Ephraim and, and Manasseh and Asher and, and Zebulon and Benjamin, why have they invited me, but you haven't? But does he punish them? No. Rather than punishing them for their rebellion, he woos them back into the fold. And he goes so far as to offer to put the leader of the army of rebellion at the head of his own army. He says, I will put Amasa in the place of Joab over the army of Israel, the man who commanded the armies under Absalom in rebellion. A man who was his own nephew. Think about it for a minute. How would you feel if your nephew was the leader of the forces against you? That's happened, of course. I mean, in human history, we've seen father against son and mother against daughter and a lot of heinous things like that. But here it is. David is not reaching out in retribution, which he very well could have done. So Amasa is his nephew as Joab was his nephew, and yet he's going to replace the one with the other. His offer was extended not only to convince the men of Judah of the genuineness of his forgiveness, but as a punishment for Joab. Because Joab was more of an offender to David than was the army of the evil one, of the rebel, of his own son, Absalom. Well, how, how was it received? The elders of Judah could hardly believe it. Whoa, he's not going to wreak retribution on us. He's forgiving us, and he's inviting us to invite him back, and he's even offering to put the leader of the rebel army at the head of his own army. So there was an enthusiastic response amongst the men of Judah to send an invitation to David, and not only to send an invitation, but go down there and bring him back to Jerusalem. And so David will make the journey. David was camped, or actually was living in a city, up on the Jabbok River. Here, the Jabbok is one of the main tributaries to the Jordan between the Sea of Galilee and uh, the Dead Sea. And a man name was bowed up in here. And so David is bringing his army down the Jabbok and down the plain of the Jordan. And he comes down here and camps opposite Gilgal. 
Uh, Gilgal was just out here a little ways, uh, just a couple, three miles away from Jericho on the plain here. And so he brings his army down. He stays on the east side of the Jordan. He doesn't come right over the Jordan because he wants this to be an official, obviously uh, enthusiastic, ceremonious return of the king. It reminds me of uh, MacArthur, right? When MacArthur left the Philippines, uh, sort of not exactly with his tail between his legs because he had been ordered out of the country, but when he left, he says, I shall return. And in 1944, after the Battle of uh, Leyte Gulf and, and uh, the, the landings was, were made on the island of Leyte, uh, MacArthur comes ashore, I have returned. And, and when you read this, the, the historical postscript, you discover that they, po they, they posed that whole thing. You know, they sent him, now wait a minute, we got to get the pictures here, so go back out there <laughs> and wade through the water ashore so that you get yourself wet a little bit and it looks like you're returning, you know, I have returned. And, uh, you got to do it right for the newsreel and, and for everything. But, uh, you know, he, David wants it to be an official return, something that he isn't sneaking back into town. He's coming back because he has been invited back and he is enthusiastically being escorted back into the city. So he has to journey 30 miles with his whole entourage down the Jabbok and down the Jordan to the campsite opposite uh, Gilgal. Now what, what is interesting is that the Jordan River throughout the ancient period of Israel always served as a border between the, the Beersheba to Dan or Dan to Beersheba realm of typical Israel and the Gilead realm over here the realm of the two and a half tribes that were living uh, over here, Reuben, and Reuben down here and Gad here and the half tribe of Manasseh up here. And that border, even though it wasn't supposed to be a border separating the country, it, was, it sort of was kind of a, a border in ways. And the people over here often looked at the people over in Gilead as kind of like distant cousins or hicks or you know, somebody, not, somebody more inferior. But uh, David stays in Gilead because the tribes of Gilead had supported him. They stood with him shoulder to shoulder. As far as we know, they provided the biggest piece of manpower for the army that, he, that was used to, to defeat Absalom. And, and we, we're again going to talk about Barzillai and, and how he represents this and, and how he represents God in, in some ways in, in God's giving to David succor in the midst of his tribulation. God does that. When you're in the midst of your trials and your tribulation, God is always there. He never is gone. He's always there. It may seem far sometimes. Sometimes the ceiling seems like brass when we pray, but our prayers are heard if they're genuine prayers prayed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so David stays over there until he is actually escorted back into the land by representatives of the other tribes. The next three passages of Scripture in the 19th chapter describe or focus on David's encounter with three individuals. These are Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. And the descriptions of these encounters give us further insight into the character of God and the Christ-likeness of David and the Christ-unlikeness of David in certain circumstances. It helps us to see the dichotomy that actually exists within every one of us. And all you have to do is read the seventh chapter of Romans and you understand something of the dichotomy. And of course, every day we realize it ourselves because there's always warring within our flesh 
you know, we have, as I've emphasized before, um, the sides are unequal. You know, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil, three against us on one side, plus ourselves, you know, our flesh, cooperating, kind of a fifth column here, and then only God on the other side. Of course, he's almighty, and that makes a big difference, of course. But, uh, you know, allying ourselves with the Spirit of God who dwells within us instead of allying ourselves with our own flesh and the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, so this dichotomy, you know, is in all of us. I know there are those who believe in perfectionism, and I know there are churches that teach that you can get to be so good that you just step over into heaven, you hardly notice the difference. I don't find that in the pages of Scripture, you know. And I haven't experienced that yet myself, you know. I still have a war going on within me. And um, so does David. And, and we see that illustrated in his, in his reaction to these three individuals. So let's read on in the, um, that's verse 16 of chapter 19 here. Then uh, Shimei, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite, who was from Barim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, with Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Then they, then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. And Shimei, the son of Gerar, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my lord the king came out of Jerusalem so that the king should take it to heart. For your servant knows I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Should not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Then David said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do not I know that I am king over Israel today? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. I really like these passages because they demonstrate true human nature and how people really react in situations. And you see it in your everyday life, in the people around you. We met this man, Shimei, back in the 16th chapter. Remember, he's a relative of Saul, possibly a cousin. It doesn't say exactly what relative he was. And, and as David was fleeing from Jerusalem because Absalom was about ready to take the city and David didn't want to sacrifice the city to the sword, and so he, he uh, abandoned the city so that there would be no battle for the city of Jerusalem. And as he flees over the top, of the Mount of Olives, of course, he meets Ziba, and, and he's mentioned this passage too. And, and then he came down and went over towards Barim, and on the direct, as he went down from Jerusalem over the top of Mount Olives and headed down this way towards the ford of the Jordan, he was coming down through here, and, and somewhere down, somewhere over in here, Shimei met him, remember? And he, he walked along a parallel ridge and he cursed David and, and said, you're an evil man and you, sh you took the throne from my family and he threw rocks and dirt and Abishai said to David, just give me the word and that man's a dead man. You know, and David says, oh, don't do this, you know, you sons of Zeruiah. He said that back in the 16th chapter too. What am I going to do with you guys? And this man Shimei now knows <laughs> that if he doesn't do something, he's toast. David had the power to eliminate this man on the spot. 
I mean, he had his second in command over after Joab standing right near him here, just itching to put a spear right through this guy or cut his head off or whatever he was planning to do. But David again restrained himself as he had the first time he met Shimei. Because remember in the case, the first time he met Shimei, he says, but I don't know but what this is the Lord causing him to say these things so that I will realize that, you know, it's my sin that has put me in this situation. And, you know, I, the Lord allowed Shimei to do this, but, but what he spoke were not God's words in any sense of the term. So David is, is being enthusiastically returned to the land and Shimei is scared to death because he could remember just a few months ago what he was doing. And, and now David's, because he thought David was finished. David was shrewd. David was fleeing. Absalom would take over. Psh, David was gone. Now David is coming back in power and glory. And Shimei is uh, quite frightened. And so he and 1,000 other Benjamites, including Ziba, rushed down to the Jordan to be the very first of the non-Judah tribes to escort David back into the country. Now notice how, how this is working. David says to the elders of Judah, how come you're the last to invite me back? But they're the first to actually bring him back because the tribe of Judah reacts immediately, goes down and calls him to come and, and without the message being spread around amongst the other tribes so they could get down there and we're going to see that leads to a lot of trouble. <laughs> Another rebellion. Oh. And so we have a few from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Ziba was from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, Mephibosheth from the tribe of ben Benjamin, and Shimei is from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was a pain in the neck, as you can see here, to uh, David at this particular time. And, and, and they cross the Jordan. I mean, these guys don't camp on the other side waiting for David to come to them. They go over the Jordan. They go over the forts, and they say, David, what can we help with? What can we carry across? What can we... What are they doing? They're kissing up, to put it in the modern vernacular. They're currying favor with, the David, with David. They're, they're trying to make it look like they really want him to come back and they're really glad that he's coming home. And Shimei goes so far as to actually prostrate himself, throw himself on the ground in front of David in an act of contrition, pleading mercy, while David is still in Gilead, not when he comes over the Jordan, but before he comes over the Jordan. Shimei had publicly railed against David. He had stood on the ridge yelling out uh, these curses against David in the midst of all of David's army and uh, all his entourage, his wives, his children, everybody as they were fleeing away. They all could hear this guy. So he's smart enough to know, I better publicly confess as well. I did it in public, I better confess in public. So right there, throws himself on the ground in front of David and yells out for everyone to hear, asking for forgiveness and confessing that he had sinned. Abishai is absolutely incensed. He says, David, just give me the word, and he is shish kebab. And David chastises Abishai for his rashness. He, you know, again, he, he says, you sons of Zeruiah, referring not only to Abishai, but, but again to Joab, because Joab has murdered his son. At least he views it as murder, and though it was execution on the battlefield. You guys want to shoot first and then try to clean up the mess afterwards. David refused to mar this glorious celebration of return with an execution. Can you imagine? When the men who had won the battle came back to the town and they found David in mourning over, over, the, over the rebel whom their forces had defeated, 
they were, they, you know, it says they snuck into town as if they had lost the battle. They were, they were just crushed in their spirit. Their joy had been turned into sorrow. Can you imagine what this would do? Everybody's joyous about bringing David back, and the first thing he does is execute somebody for having rebelled against him. Oh, you know, what's that going to say to the others? You know, well, as soon as he gets back in power, he's, then he's going to deal with us, you know. He's made it sound gentle now, but so David didn't want to do that, and I think he was right in refusing to execute Shimei, even though he had every right to, because he had cursed the Lord's anointed. To have yielded to Abishai's request would have not brought glory to David or to the Lord that day, because it would have cast a fear of retribution over the whole celebration like a cloud. But what we do discover is that there is a root that goes a little deeper here. David does not forgive Shimei in his heart. David magnanimously swore, you shall not die, I will not execute you this day, Shimei. But in inside his heart, he still felt ill will towards this man. Was Shimei's uh, plea for forgiveness genuine? Was it purely pragmatic because he didn't want to die? Very possible. But David did not forgive him. And we know that because when David's about to die, and, and I read this passage to you before, and, but let me just read it to you again. In um, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8, these are the words that David speaks to Solomon, who is becoming king in his stead. Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to, to Maonim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished. For you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him. And you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. And Solomon then carries out a particular program to, to give the man an opportunity. And the man, of course, goofs up the opportunity and is ultimately executed. So David did not deal with him that day. He promised that he would not execute him that day, and he did not execute him that day. But the day would come when his son Solomon would carry out justice on this man. You know, does this speak in any way of, of those who, in an hour of need, uh, prostrate themselves before God and, and claim that they really want to serve God when deep down in their hearts it's a lie? And, and then one day, you know, the reality comes forth and uh, the justice of God is served. I don't know. Let's look uh, at the next section here before we uh, come to an end today. Second Samuel 19, 24. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, actually grandson of Saul, uh, came down to meet the king. And he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. <laughs> he must have looked pretty good. Uh, yeah, stay over there, uh, Mephibosheth. I'll talk to you over a little bit of space here. Uh, no hugs. <laughs> and it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? 
So he answered, my, Oh, my Lord, the king, oh, oh, my Lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my Lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. What a guy, Mephibosheth. In chapter 16, again, you remember that as, as David was passing over the Mount of Olives here, on, going down the east side of the Mount of Olives, Ziba met him. Ziba was Mephibosheth's overseer of his property. Remember when Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan, uh, was found, David wanted to bless somebody from the house of Saul on, uh, because of his love for Jonathan after uh, the house of Saul had perished on Mount Gilboa in battle. And, and Mephibosheth was found and he was brought and David said, you shall live in, in my palace, you shall eat at my table and I'm going to give you your father and grandfather's lands and I'm going to have Ziba, who was the servant who had been caring for it, oversee the land for you and the prophet shall be yours, Mephibosheth. But when Ziba met David when in David's flight, uh, Ziba, of course, tried to extort the property away from his master. He used the occasion to slander Mephibosheth when David said, well, Ziba, you're here. Where's Mephibosheth? Oh, Mephibosheth didn't want to come because Mephibosheth is taking uh, advantage of this, of this coup to put himself on the throne of Israel. Now, you know, you, you can understand that David at that time was, was confused. David was, was rushing to get away. David was, was depressed. Uh, David, all, because it was irrational. Mephibosheth, this lame son of, uh, of, of Jonathan, is going to use Absalom's rebellion to put himself on the throne? That doesn't add up. But David accepted it and said, okay, then all of his property is yours, Ziba. Right on the spot. He just gives Mephibosheth's lands to Ziba. Because Ziba has brought comfort to David. He's brought food. He's brought donkeys. He br he's brought supplies and beds in David's moment of need. And so in that weak moment, David made this transfer of the property, believed what Ziba had to say. And now Mephibosheth comes before David to get it straight. But in total humility, a humble man who knew that David had blessed him beyond what he deserved. My whole house was a dead man, as a dead man, and yet you have brought me up to put me in your palace to eat at your table. What more have I to ask of you? How, you know, I don't even really want to defend myself, but I let me explain at least what really happened. And so that's what he does, and I guess we'll have to uh, uh, pick it up there when we come again. Next week, uh, Cindy Strong will do the next segment on Islam. And so you can look forward to that.